I'm pleased to welcome everybody to the latest episode of the EEF podcast, Evidence Interaction. And we're now focusing on an aspect of literacy for this podcast, building on our previous podcast where we looked at reading fluency. We're going to actually look at an aspect of reading comprehension for this podcast. So we're going to get really specialist and look at the reading comprehension house. This is a model that's been shared in the update to the improving literacy at key stage two EEF guidance report. And we're really excited to introduce and, and explore it with um, one of the originators of the model, um, Professor Kate Kane, and also to speak to some brilliant practitioners based in schools around the country to talk about how they see the model, how they apply it, and how they think about reading comprehension and, and realities of that in action. So we think it'll be another rich hour of insights. We'll <laughs> explore and we'll get to um, walk around this interesting house. Um, and we'll first start with Professor Kate Kane. So um, Kate, if I um, introduce you and just ex you know, explain your background and, and it will emerge what, about why this house is so important and, and part of your brilliant research work. Okay, thanks, Alex, for that introduction. So, yeah, hello, everybody. I'm Kate Kane. I'm a professor of language and literacy development based at Lancaster University. And I guess my particular interest is in reading and listening comprehension. Um, when I sort of started this line of research, which was way back um, when I did my PhD, there was this sort of widely held view, I guess, that teaching word reading skills was sufficient to enable successful reading comprehension. Um, but what I've been doing in my own work, um, inspired by my PhD supervisor, Jane Oakhill, is really looking at the reading comprehension aspect of that. And certainly Jane Oakhill's work was instrumental in demonstrating that there's really a separation between a child's word reading ability and their reading comprehension skills. Um, and, and what I've done in my work, I mean, others, um, you know, across the globe have done this as well, is really provided evidence for sort of, well, there's two sources of evidence, really, for this separation between word reading ability and text comprehension skills. Um, the first of that is the existence of a group of children who you all may have heard referred to as being poor comprehenders. So these are children who develop age-appropriate word reading skills, but they often fail to adequately understand what they read. So they can read a text apparently fluently, and you ask them questions about that text, um, and often, like, you know, they can't answer or, you know, like kind of their responses very, very superficial and don't demonstrate this adequate comprehension. You also find they um, have the same problems with comprehension if you read the text aloud to them. So you take away that sort of like word reading, word decoding element. Um, so a lot of my work and that of others has been looking at this group of poor comprehenders, um, you know, and we find that there's approximately sort of 10% of children um, in, in key stage two who have got this profile of developing age appropriate word reading skills, but having poor reading and poor listening comprehension. And we find this across languages and schooling systems. So it's, it's not something that's unique um, to learning to read English. 
So a lot of my work is focused on that group, trying to understand the sources of their reading and listening comprehension difficulties. Um, and another strand of my work that's really been exploring um, similar issues is longitudinal research, where we've been following children through um, from preschool. I mean, one of our studies, we started with them in preschool and we're now um, seeing these children again in, um, in adolescence and actually looking at the development of both their word reading and their reading comprehension. And there's a, a strand of research that's, again, demonstrating that you can separate out word reading ability and reading comprehension with the, the foundational skills that support them. So you find that there are different foundational skills that support word reading um, from those that support listening comprehension and then feed into reading comprehension. So I guess kind of, you know, the majority of my research has been looking at language and literacy development, trying to understand why it falls down breaks down for some children and trying to understand what are the skills that foster that development starting from preschool through transitions into literacy and beyond now you know we're looking at um reading comprehension in adolescence that's great and before we actually get to the house because i think that almost follows on i wanted to pick up about poor comprehenders um and it's probably fair to say that this is less understood and less well known for school teachers than, say, dyslexia and, and pupils who have that that profile. Do you, do you have any insights about why that that's the case? Why is this kind of less well known? Teachers might intuitively understand it, but it just doesn't feel like it gets the profile of dyslexia or kind of or structured phonics approaches, etc. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good point. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, certainly when I was started out with my PhD, there was still this widely held belief that if you teach word reading skills, then comprehension will just fall into place. And that's all you need to do. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we it's much easier to identify a child with a classic dyslexic profile than with a poor comprehender profile is that poor comprehenders learn to read words fairly accurately and fluently. So you can hear them reading a text aloud and you, you would assume that they were therefore reading with meaning, reading for comprehension with a dyslexic child they struggle to decode those words accurately. You know, you can hear the effort that is going in. So it's only really if you have the time to be able to listen to a child read and then ask them questions that are probing their understanding that you will identify that they actually have a text comprehension difficulty. And that it's, it's not that they don't remember anything to do with the text that they've read. You know, they'll often have a superficial understanding. They can recall facts, literal details, fairly obvious things. But it's that sort of deeper processing of connecting up ideas within the text, bringing their general knowledge to bear on the text, understanding ambiguous words appropriately within the context of the text. It's those sorts of things where they fall down in their comprehension. So I think it's quite easy and understandable why they can be overlooked in a standard classroom. And perhaps a factor is that we're talking about just different aspects of reading comprehension here, aren't we? And, and the fact whenever you get multiplicity, 
you know, you get multiple rooms in the house, then it's there's just more to deal with for, for busy teachers. Um, and I think there's a lot of noise, I think, perhaps around reading comprehension, a lot of pressures, but but perhaps less kind of careful, you know, support for school teachers to engage with the best evidence and to to unpack the complexity, I think, which is, you know, almost reason enough for, for models like the Reading Comprehension House. Well, I think there's, um, you know, the complexity, there's the complexity for the teacher, which is, you know, like why we originally sort of devised this model of the Reading Comprehension House. But it also picks up on the fact it's the complexity for the reader. So to understand a text well, you're actually drawing on a whole range of skills dynamically in real time in order to construct meaning. So there are actually a lot of different skills and knowledge bases that are essential for adequate reading comprehension, and therefore a lot of points or pressure points where reading comprehension can break down. I think that's fascinating, Kate. And I'm just listening to you with my my secondary um, teacher head on here and thinking about when pupils come up to secondary school and they're still struggling with their reading and how difficult it is to actually you know diagnose what part of reading they need the most help with um, and that idea you know do they have those dyslexic tendencies or are they comprehenders is a really interesting um, kind of reflection for me there I think the reading house model is a great model for reading um, and I think it's relevant for, for all teachers regardless of the phase that they work in um, and you know talking to teachers since we we updated the guidance report it's been really well received but I suppose for those that are not that familiar with it um you know would you give us a, a quick tour of the house you know exploring some of these elements of um reading both in isolation but also you know how they are interconnected sure yeah and I agree that I think that this model is appropriate for children and and teachers of children at all stages of reading development. Um, so what we were doing with this reading comprehension house, it comes from a collaboration with colleagues um, over in the United States. And it was part of our project, looking at the language basis of reading comprehension. So our focus in many ways was on the sort of the right hand side, um, sort of the language comprehension um, side of the house. But it takes its starting point from the simple view of reading. So this was a model that um, I, a lot of teachers will be familiar with, um, you know, that has sort of like underpinned um, a lot of educational policy and practice in the UK and elsewhere for um, a couple of decades now. So the idea with the simple view is this framework for understanding reading comprehension ability and its development. And at the core, you have this idea that reading comprehension is determined by word reading skills and your language comprehension skills. So both of these are essential for adequate reading comprehension. In the classic dyslexic child, it would be the word reading skills that are typically weak. In the classic poor comprehender profile that we touched on, it's the language comprehension skills that are weak. And what we were doing with the Reading Comprehension House was we were trying to provide an illustration um, of each of these two core components, the word reading and the language comprehension, unpacking them to show the different foundational skills that are supporting each. You know, I often talk about like the black box 
of um, listening comprehension. You know, it's very difficult to really understand what might go wrong and how to develop effective curricula um, for children in general, how to develop targeted interventions if you don't understand the core components underpinning it. So really sort of what we did, we did, and it, it is just focusing on really sort of like the core language skills that are important. So we have for word reading, the idea that your decoding skills, your ability to read unfamiliar letter strings um, is important. Um, an unfamiliar letter string is not always a non-word or a pseudo word in our language. A lot of the words that we learn to read, you know, they start off. As, as being sort of like unfamiliar pseudo words, if you like. And, and because your, um, your spoken vocabulary is so much greater than your written vocabulary as a beginner reader, then obviously non-word reading um, is an important skill to enable access to text. And then you've also got your full word recognition, so reading real words, and then the fluency with which you can do these. You know, as I said, sort of the classic dyslexic reader, often has very laboured, effortful, slow reading. And then sort of like underpinning those skills that support word reading, we have those sort of oral language skills, if you like, your phonological awareness, awareness of the sound structure of our spoken language, and print knowledge, knowing the alphabet, that type of knowledge. So those are sorts of like the foundational skills and ability and knowledge bases that underpin word reading. And then on the other hand, if we think about language comprehension, again, we've got different foundational skills and ability. So to read and understand a text or, or to understand a text that's been spoken aloud to you, read aloud to you, you've got to understand the meanings of the words in the text. So vocabulary knowledge is obviously important. Um, you've got to combine those word meanings into meaningful sentences. So grammar and syntax comes to play. And then there are other skills that enable the reader to construct what we often refer to as a mental model of the text meaning. And that this is where a lot of my um, research has focused on. So when you read and understand text, you don't remember it verbatim. You don't necessarily remember the specific syntax or um, sentence structures that have been used. What you, readers do is they construct an integrated and coherent representation of the text meaning. And that means that you've got to actually link up the ideas within a text. Um, and we use our inference and integrative skills in order to do that. So sentences don't just stand there in isolation. We link them up so we can see the overlap in meaning and construct this mental model um, of a text meaning. And one of the ways, one of the other skills that's important to help us to do that is our ability to monitor our comprehension or to evaluate how well we've understood something. So if you're monitoring your comprehension, then you will realise if there's a word that you don't know the meaning of. You'll realise if something doesn't make sense and maybe you've got to go back and reread or generate an inference in order to understand why a character did something. Because there's always a motivation for characters' actions that um, pass through a text. And then another um, element in the reading comprehension house that is important is knowledge of text structure. 
So narratives and narrative structure is fairly familiar to us from a very young age because, I mean, our autobiographical memories um, are structured in a narrative format. So if you're simply relating like what you did um, at a party, for example, a young child is using their narrative language skills. But as you move through um, schooling, you know, and you have this in key stage two, and then it becomes even more important later on, you're exposed to a range of different text structures, and you have to use those texts in order to learn a much, much broader curriculum. And if you've got that framework, that can help you to impose a structure on it. So you've got sort of like your word knowledge, you've got your kind of ability to combine those words into sentences, you've got these skills of inference, comprehension, monitoring, and narrative that enable you to make links between the different sentences and phrases and words in the text to construct this overall representation of the text meaning. And that's sort of the language comprehension side. And then you've got, so you've got this language comprehension, you've got this word reading, and together they enable reading comprehension. That's really useful, Kate. Thank you. We often um, talk about that influencing room and, you know, it's a bit of a mystery somehow um, for many teachers. What about oral language? You know, we talk about in the in the guidance report about speaking and listening and how it's at the heart of language development. Where does that fit into this house? Does it does it fit at the bottom of it or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Oh, it's always more complicated than that, isn't it? So I think of all of the skills that I talked about, your knowledge of word meanings, your ability to understand sentences, generating inferences, monitoring your comprehension, knowledge of text structure. Those are all elements of oral language. Children are using those skills in preschool, um, in conversation, um, as well as in sort of like shared reading experiences. Um, so I would argue, and what we've sort of like demonstrated, certainly in our longitudinal research that's been tracking a group of um, preschoolers and other people have shown this as well, that those early oral language skills before reading instruction has commenced, those are very important in predicting how easily you will sort of like acquire good reading comprehension. And they've got a very strong prediction um, going throughout your um, education. I guess the distinction between what you might think of as oral language or one distinction between what you might think of as oral language and what you might think of as written language is that we use very different um, vocabulary and we use um, different types of sentence structure when it comes to written language. And we also have longer texts. We're not talking about texts, not about the here and now. Um, it's actually decontextualized. So you've got this framework, if you like, that your spoken language, your oral language skills are very important for enabling um, good listening and reading comprehension. But there are additional things um, that we encounter in written language, um, which is why um, it, you know, instruction and support in the schoolroom is important as well. I mean, I guess I think the other thing to note is that I wouldn't, in, in terms of thinking about oral language, I certainly wouldn't just advocate a focus on oral languages vocabulary or 
oral language is grammar or oral language is understanding narrative. Like all of these different elements are important there. They're developed and they're fostered, as I said, before reading instruction begins, um, you know, like kind of in the home, through conversation, through shared um, book reading. Um, and those skills act as a solid foundation to enable good understanding of written text. Yeah, I think that that dynamic nature, you talk about kind of some of the different rooms, but also the different kind of domains, the different kind of aspects of reading. They are what make it, you describe about complexity. You know, it is one of the most amazingly complex, you know, things that an, a, a child can undertake, isn't it? And, and whenever we're trying to distill that into something that's understood, we're going to lose some of the nuance. So it's probably one of the, the dangers and challenges of, of using models, isn't it? That we kind of, we don't, we can't ever quite capture that, you know, that complexity. Um, one area, and, and again, I'll end up doing it where we're focusing on one room, um, but one room that's perhaps had more prominence um, more recently is, is where we, it's kind of, and, and perhaps it's, it's a bit broader than one room, is, is this notion of background knowledge. And the notion of knowledge almost perhaps you know, more recently becoming all important that we, we've just not thought about this before. And, we, and we've thought about some other things and we've not got the balance right. Um, what are your reflections on, on the, the importance of, of background knowledge? And, and it, I think also its relatedness to the, the picking of text choices and, and the, the sequencing of curriculums, a big focus at the moment around background knowledge and building it in some sort of sequential way to support people's learning and reading development. Um, bit of an overloaded question perhaps there, but the, you, your, your insights into the importance of background knowledge and how we're seeming to mobilise that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really, really good point. So background knowledge and its importance has become more prominent in recent years. And there are very good reasons for that. So you know that so a student with poor reading ability, so, for example, um, weak word reading skills, they can actually use their background knowledge to compensate for that weakness because they can use that knowledge as a framework for the items and the events and the words that are likely to occur in a text. So background knowledge is very important in that respect. What One of the things that um, puzzles, well, it doesn't puzzle me, I was going to say it keeps me awake at night at the moment, but a lot of us are thinking about is where does vocabulary end and background knowledge begin? Because if you think about good, secure vocabulary knowledge, where you've got good semantic relations between different words that share features or are related by topic, that partly um, leads in to background knowledge. So you can see how, you know, it is very difficult to conceptualise background knowledge in that sense. And I think another key thing to note is that it's important to build background knowledge to support reading, but we're never going to know what background knowledge is required for certain texts that children are choosing to read. You can never teach everything. And we also have to remember that background knowledge in turn is actually developed from reading. I mean, it's not actually separable from reading experience. So you end up with these complex reciprocal relations that background knowledge supports, I don't know, the retrieval um, of, of the most appropriate meaning 
of an ambiguous word or an unfamiliar word. It can enable a, a student, a reader to generate an inference. But you've also got your reading experience enabling growth in background knowledge because reading in itself is providing opportunities for learning across a wide range of topics. So I think one of the things that you can do in a classroom and that teachers um, already do is when sort of reading and activities are themed around sort of like particular topics, that can help to build some of that background knowledge. And I think just an appreciation of how background knowledge can provide access to more difficult texts because you already know about those concepts, have some ideas of some of the meanings of those unfamiliar words is very important. And it, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's particularly important in thinking about the increasing diversity that you have in a classroom. You know, not all children have access to the same background knowledge. So I found this when um, working with colleagues like over in the US and I was writing the inference materials for an experiment. Um, and there was a story all about like kind of snow and building snowmen and ice skating. And like kind of my, my collaborators in Arizona said, well, our children aren't going to know and have the background knowledge to actually be generating some of those inferences. So you do actually have to, you know, it is very important and particularly thinking, as I said, about the diversity in our classrooms now. Children from different cultural backgrounds, children, um, you know, like kind of who have not had the opportunity to have certain experiences may lack what a teacher thinks is very basic background knowledge. And that could be a barrier to their understanding. But then you can use a text that introduces those experiences that they can't experience in real life, but they can actually gain access to that through a text about that. And with appropriate discussion and scaffolding, you can then use that text to teach them the background knowledge that will then like kind of help them to understand like kind of other texts on that and that and sort of related topics. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. I think I think what you've described there is the importance that every teacher has that good, solid understanding of, of background knowledge and it's and the scope of its room, its relatedness, but also the limitations as well. At that point that stood out for me is that you can't sequence everything, you know, and, and when people read independently, when they sit in, in sats, you know, we can't we can't line this up in some perfect sequence. But but that thoughtfulness around connecting up and and, and kind of building the kind of uh, a supporting curriculum can be helpful. I, I would I would recommend um, your book, actually. One of the things as a school leader myself that really helped me understand the role of knowledge, but also all the dynamic interplay of, of other aspects of reading was your book on understanding and teaching reading comprehension, um, which with the aforementioned Jane O'Kill and, and Carsten Elbro, I think that was a, a brilliant example of, you know, the complexity we've got here, but in, communicated in a way that was well understood. Just listening to you, Kate, I know that other listeners um, of this podcast are going to be feeling really energised, enthusiastic and really excited to to really explore how that reading house can can change their own practice in the classroom. And I suppose this podcast in itself and the guidance report really helps with developing that knowledge base around, you know, how children learn to read and how they can become skilled comprehenders. Um, 
suppose what are your reflections or experiences about how practitioners have actually used this model successfully? What does that look like in a classroom when you go into a school? How do they how do they transform it? I think what it looks like is a knowledgeable and empowered teacher who therefore, because they understand how things fit together, because they understand some of the evidence base and the theory, they can use that flexibly within their own classroom for an appropriate challenge, an appropriate context, an appropriate goal. I mean, I, I've seen some brilliant, absolutely brilliant examples of, for, you know, like kind of where a teacher is using a read, they're reading aloud a book that's got kind of difficult, unfamiliar vocabulary. And they themselves, for example, will model how they're thinking about a word, searching for the context so they can actually use sort of like inference skills in order to derive the meaning of the word. You know, by modeling that, they're using like their comprehension monitoring skills to say, hang on a minute. I'm reflecting on this and I don't understand that word. So I think, you know, those sorts of things, if you've got the knowledge, then you don't have to teach to a recipe or a script. And we know that in a classroom, you can't really teach to a script because you've got a classroom of individuals who've all got different strengths and weaknesses. So it enables you to actually select appropriate questions to ask, appropriate strategies to teach, or things to model based on what you have in front of you. And, and, and that, to me, is the power of it, understanding there are these different components that fit together so that you can, by having that knowledge, um, you're, you're em empowered, as I said, to sort of like develop things that are appropriate, either for an immediate challenge or if you're planning sort of like more over the long term. I think I think it's very often it's about making that implicit explicit, isn't it, as well? Um, thank you so much for that. that. That's been really informative. It's provided a lot of clarity around the language of the house and what it actually means and and what it's going to look like in a, in a practical sense. And, and hopefully when we talk to other colleagues later, they'll be able to give us some insights into, you know, how can we do that in the classroom? What are the tools and resources that we need to be able to do that? So thank you so much for your time today, Kate. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Okay, I'm really pleased to introduce our next guest, who's also a previous host of the podcast. So, so Caroline, you're, um, you're a trendsetter once again. Um, our, our first guest from schools um, is Caroline Bilton. And Caroline, let, let introduce yourself and um, just your background and current role. Hi, Alex. It's absolutely brilliant, brilliant to, to fight my way back onto the podcast. Um, as you say, yeah, I'm, I'm in school. I'm deputy head teacher at Cragside CV Primary up in the northeast in Northumberland. Um, great job, <laughs> super busy at the moment, I think I would describe it as, um, but most I'm in amongst teachers, working with them in the classroom every day to support their practice. And alongside my role as deputy head, I also have the privilege of continuing just a little bit of the work from my secondment and working a day a week with you guys, which is, is brilliant on things literacy. So, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and one of the key roles you've played, Caroline, is uh, supporting the update to the Key Stage 2 
um, literacy guidance, which in many ways is the topic uh, of this podcast. But we've narrowed the focus a little bit. We've funneled in towards um, the reading comprehension house, which we're really excited about as a, as a useful um, model. We just had Professor Kate Kane explain it so people get into understand what why that model could be useful. But the, the first question I wanted to ask you is about, about the current realities and about taking a full guidance report, taking seven recommendations, taking a, a topic as complex as reading comprehension and, and simplifying it into a model. What can you say just about the current context of kind of practices and priorities around reading comprehension as you see it in school? They're, 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 still, they're, they're still ones that we're grappling with. For lots of teachers, reading comprehension is still that activity that you, a, a child does. They get the they get the piece of text, they get the set of questions, and you know, through no fault of their own, teachers assuming that is the practice that achieves the the the, the progress that we know from the toolkit is something we're all desperate for for kids. But you know, really getting to understand what it is we do with children in discussion with high quality texts. For lots of teachers, that's still an ambition, a one they're working hard to achieve and, and, and struggling a little bit with, very understandably so. And there's a reality is that uh, you know, May will soon be upon us, children will be sitting yeah. down, you know, sat oh, yes. papers and, and the pressure's there to do lots of practice yeah. for what yeah. looks like, you know, reading comprehension, looks like a sat paper and I think what you've described there around actually thinking about curriculum thinking about different approaches to reading thinking about bringing text alive um, mm. and, and the complexity of that it is often fighting isn't it with that kind of reality oh, of well, we need lots of practice absolutely and there is constant battling uh, like you can see teachers will say that, that we'll have so many discussions even just today about that balance I need to get them sats ready well, we need to think about the sats Caroline so we need to practice that whole questioning technique and I get that we do we, we children are in a sufficiently challenging situation when you know when they get the paper in front of them I've taught year six for years and years and we would talk about it being almost a celebration of everything we'd done would it would, would address it with all you know a bit of a cry to arms of, of, of getting this this paper and making it our own but children are going to face enough of a of a challenge with that paper and so yeah we want we want to prepare them in the best way we possibly can but what I, we also want to do is provide those very genuine opportunities in class with the teacher, with their peers, to very genuinely engage in text in a way that we all know will facilitate that progress. Anybody that's really interested in the evidence around teaching and reading, you know, they'll be familiar with models like the simple view of reading. You know, there are, yeah. there are other models out there. This is another one um, in the mix. And I suppose... There, are, there will be kind of limitations and things to be aware yeah. of in terms of it looks great on the page, doesn't it? But how mm -hmm. do we then bring that to life? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the question, isn't it? And that's kind of the thing I get really fired up about. I really want to, to talk about what it is teachers deserve and need that, that, to support their practice, understanding the rooms of the house, how far genuinely 
do our teachers really, really get this? And what, what more can we do? I, I think you're absolutely right that to question what, what we need as teachers. Um, but it's, it, it, it's there, isn't it? It's doing the job that we need it to, to open up the questions, to, to, to have an evaluation. What, what, which room do we feel confident in, in our own practice? What do we want to know more about? What professional development? What, what further can we do as a staff to support this understanding of, of, of what we need, of what, you know, what we need shared across, across teachers there? That's been really insightful as ever, um, really passionate. Um, and uh, I think that captures what I see when teachers talk about reading and, and the yeah. empowering act of reading in the classroom. So it's great to hear from you. Uh, and thank you again, Caroline, for coming back on to the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for asking me. <laughs> thank you very much. So I'm really pleased to now speak to James Hiddle, who is a head teacher and director of research school. Um, and James, if you can introduce yourself and just tell a little bit about your background, we'll then dig into uh, the Reading Comprehension House and, and all things reading. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So I'm James Siddle. Um, I'm the director of Cairo Research School, have been since four or five years now. Um, I'm also a primary head teacher of a small rural primary school near the Lincolnshire coast. And I still teach every single day, still teach reading every single day with, with a group of year six children. So I'm um, still very, very much at the chalk face. Yeah, that's really useful. I think, and you mentioned about kind of teaching year six class. Are there any rooms there where you're thinking, right, this feels more salient, not, not to the exclusion of, you know, any other aspect of reading, but this feels more salient. This is what I'm routinely working on right now in the classroom. Sure. Um, I think on, on the right-hand side of that, that uh, of the house, and I can, again, I can, I can remember my own teachers saying on to me occasionally, you know, how do you teach inference? <laughs> you know, this kind of, if they haven't got the vocabulary knowledge, and they, they understand that, that, that the house is interconnected, but, you know, we have to focus on those different elements. And, and I think sometimes that there can be an element of teachers feeling like just looking at elements like vocabulary can be a bit reductionist. For example, you know, it's not enough to just look at vocabulary, but they understand that actually there's, there's links across them. Um, so, you know, thinking about inferencing, comprehension, monitoring, those things where, where the text becomes more complex, um, accessing text becomes more complex. And I think that these are the things that, that teachers are struggling with, uh, you know, on, on a regular day-to-day -day basis. You know, just, just understanding things like comprehension, monitoring, you know, what, what does that really look like? What does it even mean? Um, and really being then sort of burying down into having those professional dialogues, those professional discussions um, you know, with, with, with your staff and to be able to say, well, actually, this is what the evidence su suggests. This is what we're dealing with. This is how we can potentially solve those problems. And, you know, therefore, how I can support my staff as well. Um, because, you know, what, a recurrent theme uh, running through this, and I'm sure I will get onto this, is, is how, how, from a leadership point of view, I can support my staff to be able to access research, access evidence, uh, and be able to kind of really kind of fine tune their practice. Yeah, that, that's, I think that, that comes through. Even in the last few podcasts we've talked about, so in the previous podcast, we talked almost exclusively about reading fluency. And, and when you just consider, well, that is just one facet of reading, and, and we've touched on it here again, but then, as you state, we end up 
by exploring just terms, terms that not everyone's familiar with. We don't bring the same you know, degree of understanding. And sometimes there's active misunderstandings around, around phrases, around where the emphasis should be, perhaps. And I, I wanted to touch upon the likes of, um, you know, rec even recently, the kind of the reading war seemed to have you know, flared up again in terms of um, you know, debates about phonics, debates about early reading. Um, where, do, where does the likes of the reading house help in that regard? Where does it support understanding? Does it help cut through some of, of the noise, perhaps? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it does. Um, I, I, I think fundamentally, I think, you know, having worked with so many teachers that have done research projects and really wanted to focus on, on, on reading, I think one of the things that comes across really clearly is that, that, that schools need to spend time and invest time in really kind of understanding what, 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 what the evidence suggests um, and understanding um, the, the research that sits behind it. And I think that, that, that there can be a propensity sometimes to move too quickly through that stage into the doing. Um, and I think so, you know, if we take an element like, you know, comprehension monitoring and then we start digging down into what the evidence suggests around comprehension monitoring, that, yeah, that, that there are, that, that, you know, there are different definitions. There are different camps in terms of, you know, defining what does comprehension monitoring look like? But there are some common themes that come through in this, you know, thinking about, you know, metacognition, you know, uh, evaluation, regulation that come through in the evidence that we can start sort of focusing our attentions on. Um, so I, th I think that's that's one of the areas that it's useful, you know, focus on this particular area and then look at the, um, what the, dig down deeply into what the evidence suggests. Yes, there are differences in there, but what are the themes that come through? And, th and then you start to think about, you know, you don't want to reduce this. You start thinking about the context. You start thinking about your own pupils, um, your own students. You know, what, you know, what does it look like in my own school? And I, I think at this stage, it's starting to sort of think about, you know, what are the problems that, that we see in, in, in the classroom? Um, what are the things that we're actually trying to solve in the first place and how does that marry up with, with what the research evidence kind of, you know, su suggests? Um, and if we take something like, um, uh, again, comprehension monitoring, yes, there, there, there are discourse around the, even the definition of comprehension monitoring, but those common themes, those common threads, and then you might start thinking about, well, you know, we, we know those children that, that are really good at comprehension monitoring, that have those kind of metacognitive processes. They're really good at evaluating, they're really good at regulating. Um, and but when we know how that contrasts with other children within the classroom and actually that you can see seeing clearly what the problems are and what the needs might be. So I, I think I think an understanding of, of the research evidence is, is really clear, but not be getting bogged down in that and seeing those common themes and thinking about that, contextualising that back in, into your own schools and your own classrooms. And, and just to think about that practically. So one of the things we see, well, we see it in year six a lot, but not exclusively, but we see reading comprehension often distilled into sats kind of length texts you know your three or four yeah. paragraphs and 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 comprehension monitoring and, and and reading comprehension a bit more broadly often gets reduced to kind of reading kind of bite-sized texts and answering three or four questions wow. um do, what, what's your view what's your view of that because th there is a challenge here about how we you know how we develop our pupils as readers and that might actually run contrary to what the actual SATs looks like. Uh, what's your reflections on that? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It kind of echoes what I was saying at the beginning about sometimes assessment driving practice. Um, yeah. And I completely understand it. You know, I've got my year six pupils, I need to get them through SATs, etc. And again, there's a temptation to reduce it um, in, into looking at, uh, at those kind of length of text, etc. And, and uh, yeah, there is a necessity to do that, you know, to understand the, um, um, you know, the, the assessment that's coming up. 
but just to focus on that would would would, would um, do them a disservice. Um, that you know, I, I'm a real fan of, of real high quality literature, um, of reading you know um, whole books, um, being that model, you know, going through that process. You know, you, you know, even when you get to year six, I can remember when I first started out as a teacher, reading a book and a child at the front saying that's the first time I've you know, read through a whole book, and how tragic I felt that 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 was for that for that individual that they hadn't read that kind of length of book before. So exposing them to that variety of language, um, that, that vocabulary, that complexity of ideas is, is really important. Yes, within that, also, you know, focus on other, other links of text as well, but certainly um, not at the detriment of, of looking at high quality literature and high quality text as you go through. Um, and, you know, and I think that, that that needs to be whole school. We're talking about year six now, but right, you know, right from the start, right from early on, being read and being exposed to, to that high quality text when they first come into school and building that up through right through key stage one and to key stage two. So they again and again they've been exposed to that high quality literature. Yeah, that's really that's a great point. Can I go back to about professional development? Because I think once again, we, we almost keep on touching upon different areas of complexity. So what does good quality literature look like at each key stage? What, you know, how would you unpack some of the more challenging texts you know in, in key stage one perhaps where you've got some people who are still you know aiming for that word recognition you know where do we get the balance between text choice I, I want to come back then to that professional development question around um where, where do you see the places for the likes of the reading house model um would you practically kind of explore one room at a time or do you think teachers need to have that kind of whole view, that holistic view, the, the interconnected nature of, of the rooms in the house? I think for, for me, the answer is a little bit of both. Um, yeah. I, I, th I think we obviously can focus on certain areas, but we need to understand the interconnectedness. So, for example, understanding the, the word reading elements, the, the full word recognition and the fluency, how that links to inferencing and comprehension and the vocabulary. You know, and I, and I think that comes back to the point I made before about really understanding the, re the research evidence. And I think one of the things that we do as a school is that when we're thinking about a, a school development plan for, for the following year is we start it as early as possible. So, you know, we start it this kind of time of year, if not before. And we just spend an awful lot of time looking at the research and understanding the links that, 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 that and the interconnectedness between those, those different ideas. And it's not for a, until we a long period of time until we've investigated that, that kind of research that we start to kind of think more deeply about what it is that we need to do, the problem we need to solve that's in front of us. And then, and then I think, you know, once you have that understanding, then you can break it down into its component parts. So I, I always remember thinking about, for example, when we were implementing explicit vocabulary um, instruction, I think back in, I think we started back in two, 2017 uh, when we were looking at that. Um, and we looked a lot at Isabel Beck's work around instruction and then really did drill down into what it looked like in terms of an instructional model. But then also considered, you know, you mentioned about professional development, how professional development could support that. Um, and I think what, what comes through was also as part of the, um, the, the evidence review that we went into is that those, those studies which were efficacious that had an effect on, on pupil outcomes had a really strong model of professional development to back them up. Um, and without those mechanisms in there, without that support, that it wasn't going to happen. Um, and coming back to that, 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 that 2017 putting vocabulary, for example, the support in vocabulary, I can remember that we had a model of, of instructional coaching that we put in there. Um, and 
you know, we, we would spend a whole half term just looking about how we introduce new vocabulary and new language. And we would go in and everyone had a coach. I had a coach and I was the initial model for it. Everybody came in and observed me. Um, and it was, you know, that, that, that rich professional dialogue around, you know, I just wasn't getting it right. And, and we came back to the evidence. It was back and forth between the practice and the evidence. And I think we spent up to eight weeks just discussing how we would, you know, introduce new vocabulary. And we all made sure together collectively that we're all sort of at the same stage. And only at that stage did we then move on about how we were then spending the rest of the week developing word consciousness. Um, and, and I think that, and one of the interesting things about this as a school leader is that I, I felt that we were working really collectively in a professional community, but I, I didn't want to put too much um, pressure on my teachers. So towards the end, I withdrew it. Uh, I withdrew that instructional coaching. I withdrew some of those mechanisms when we started to talk about assessment. And, and the interesting thing was that, that my teachers stopped doing it. They, they, they stopped having those dialogue, having that discussion, and they stopped it in terms of the practice. And, and, what I needed to, and then I had to go back. Um, and then put that professional support back in place again that, and that rhythm, that continuous rhythm in place. Uh, and, you know, it took a year of just, just constantly focusing on those different components, the different elements of professional development to support the, the instructional practice until we felt right across the school that, that, that we had a kind of fairly homogenous approach to it. Um, you know, that, that was a real learning curve for me in terms of that ongoing support. Um, and it's just a fascinating one. And how difficult it is to, you know, for us all to change but not just changing the short term to embed that, that, that change. But again, yeah. coming back to that research evidence, again, if you understand the research evidence, you understand the research evidence around supporting that practice. My key takeaway, I think, is this notion of touring teachers around the house, and that guided support, that dialogue around it, that sustaining element. And I couldn't help but, you know, that, that point you made around teachers just, you know, with all the best will kind of, we're just it's just an incredibly busy job isn't it and it's so yes. demanding and reading can often feel like pleasurable natural it can feel like the most natural thing to do in the classroom and, and sometimes that can kind of we can retreat to some some habits some some habits that are fantastic and hard won but some that kind of miss some of those challenges yeah absolutely okay well just to say thank you again james for your time um and for kind of you know your exploration of the house and 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 the work that you do um, in your brilliant school and, and over in the research school at Cairo. Um, so yeah, thanks again for your time and for coming on to talk everything reading. Yeah, brilliant. It was nice to talk about it all. That was really great to hear from from Kate and that kind of that research background with with such rich insight into the complexities of reading, but also they'd bring it to the classroom to hear from Caroline and James and and the year six classrooms and their primary schools and and the reality of translating the house into action. And I think what's come through all of this discussion is the, the, the necessity for a model that's a bit complex because reading is a bit complex and it needs multiple rooms for that house. And you can't, you can't get away with too simple a model. Um, and it's why I, I like the reading comprehension house building on the, you know, the more basic simple view of reading, but it's, it's got that you know, added nuance. I think my big reflection, thinking about the pressures of time that Caroline talked about, the current realities in schools and, and what James talked about in terms of professional development, is we need to use models like this to help kind of you know, take the research and make it understood. But also we need to do that guided tour and it needs to be supported, whether that's new coaching models, sustained high quality training. But, but that guided tour of the house is so necessary. And given reading is so fundamental, it is that access point to the school curriculum 
you know, we can devote that time to engaging with the evidence. We can devote that time and should devote that time to professional development for reading. Yeah, what were your, what were your thoughts? Um, I think that after listening to, to our guests today, you know, it's that importance that the Reading House model is a brilliant model that kind of opens that door for teachers and leaders to explore the evidence base and the, the really complex parts of reading. Um, but it kind of opens that door to developing the knowledge. But then, you know, listening to what James had to say then about, you know, his own experiences, it goes back to that, that crucial part of implementation and planning for that. And I think, you know, you can take yourself in that guided tour, you can develop your knowledge, but, you know, ultimately you've got to identify the priorities for your own school. You've got to um, provide time for your staff to be able to really get to grips with the, the evidence base for that room within the house. Um, you know, do, do they know enough about it? Have they digested it? Have they had time to have that dialogue about it, to explore what good practice may or may not look like? Um, so for me, it's that emphasis around the explore phase um, and then preparing really um, for that long term behaviour change and that implementation. Yeah, and I think uh, in James, when James talked about the likes of vocabulary in his school, he'd obviously shrunken the focus, hadn't he? And, and that seems important, that kind of finding a, an area that's you know, amenable for change, but it's also not every room in the house straight off because that would just be a bit overwhelming. Okay, so let's finish there. Our exploration of the reading house is over. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please do, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Evidence in Action um, podcast um, and keep following where we'll explore some more interesting areas of evidence and we'll speak to you know, brilliant experts in the field and also amazing practitioners in the classroom. Thank you for listening.